Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. Welcome to week three in this very important series on breaking the cycle. Uh, forgiveness and reconciliation as seen through the story and the letter we read about in the New Testament called Philemon. Imagine with me. The letter arrives at the house of Philemon. I'm sure another slave answers the door, and there standing in the doorway, shockingly, is the runaway slave Onesimus. But probably not just him, probably at least one other Christian leader or more. The church would gather, conversations would begin. The runaway slave they hear has met Paul, now has become a Christian, has a letter for the whole church, but also a personal letter for you, Philemon. We know the whole church would hear the reading of both letters, and tensions as they are read would begin to rise. I mean, Onesimus, the runaway slave, knows what Paul is going to ask. But would Philemon agree? And don't forget, all the other slaves are also hearing this. What would they do? And also, let's remind ourselves one last time, the makeup of this local church in Colossae is already Roman-defying and mind-blowing. Only 30-plus years after Jesus' physical resurrection, we already have a description found in one of those letters, Colossians 3.11. Here in this church, there is no non-Jew or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Amazing. But this next request might blow up all this amazing Jesus work. This might be just a bridge too far. Yes, we're all in Jesus. Amen. Yes, we have eternal life. Amen. Yes, we're all going to go to the new heavens and the new earth, and, and the resurrection is ours. But Philemon the slave broke the law, right? And stole from his master, right? And actually, in that culture, humiliated Philemon. By the way, now we're in week three. Let's talk about something we haven't even addressed yet. In week one, we talked about the differences between modern slavery, Roman slavery, and what we'll call New World slavery. But in Roman times, what was the penalty for running away as a slave? Well, a guy named Moses Finley gives us a pretty harsh description. He says, fugitive slaves are almost an obsession in the ancient sources. Rome forbade the harboring of fugitive slaves, and professional slave catchers were hired to hunt down runaways. Advertisements tended to be posted with precise descriptions of escaped slaves, and offers and rewards were, were given. Now, if caught, fugitive slaves could be punished by being whipped, being burnt with an iron, or actually killed in some cases. Now, those who lived sometimes were actually branded on the forehead with the letters F-U-G for fugitive. So for the rest of their life, you would see that. Sometimes slaves had a metal collar riveted around their neck. Actually, there's one preserved still in Rome today. And in Latin, it's inscribed this way, I have run away. Catch me. If you take me back to my master, you will be rewarded. By the way, I had never caught this, never understood this. Maybe you didn't catch this. But remember, when Onesimus ran away to Rome, he stayed with Paul. In other words, everyone ready? Paul broke Roman law by harboring the runaway slave. And he did it as a, as a Roman citizen. See, this is the beginning. This begins to show us his God-inspired view and what he's doing. Yes, rarely we can break the laws of the land if it violates the laws of God. Yes, there is room for biblically informed civil disobedience. If they said you can't preach the gospel or they say you must do this thing, uh, such as you can't take communion. Uh, as a side note, totally different sermon. What we're experiencing right now in this moment 
is not comparable. I just want to say that. It might in the future, but it's not now. Yet Paul, though he civilly disobeys, and Paul also knowing the danger and penalty that might happen to Onesimus, he actually has the audacity to send Odysseus back to Philemon. Why? Well, because Paul says the gospel changes everything. Paul had prayed and modeled and taught, and now the implications of the gospel need to take deeper root. Again, let's begin where we ended last week, the truth, the amazing affirmation, and what we call the divine holy setup. Philemon 7. 7. Uh, Paul saying to Philemon himself, Your love, Philemon, has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts uh, of the Lord's people. Hey, Philemon, you're a good pastor, you're a good leader, a real follower of Jesus, and you love God's people so well, and you've got the spiritual gift of encouragement, and you've experienced grace and peace with God, which you cannot earn, and you already are known for loving the Christian community so well, no matter who they are. But I've got news for you, Philemon. I want you to look up and look at your slave, Onesimus, that runaway. He's standing in front of you right now. He's become a Christian, a a real Christian. So what are you going to do now? And by the way, you're a leader in this local church and they're going to follow your lead. And more important, God is watching to see if you will allow the kingdom of God to break out in a deeper way. How far will you let the work of God go in your heart? Actually, let's just name it. Let's talk about forgiveness. Now, verse 8 through 14 is one long sentence in Greek, one thought. Begins like this, verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ, I, Paul, could be bold and order you, order you to do what you ought to do. Okay. Paul says to Philemon, I know God's will on this one. I'm his apostle. I've got his authority. I've got his backing. Listen, I write scripture. What I'm about to say to you is God's will. This could be a blunt command and it would be right in God's eyes. But I actually don't think I need to do this. Let me put aside my God-given authority and rights. Instead, I want to show you where real power is. Actually, Philemon, you know Jesus is not just our Savior and Lord, right? He's our model in everything, correct? I, verse 9, would prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. So I'm going to give up my rights for the kingdom and for the gospel, and I'm not going to boss you around Philemon, which is actually what a master-slave relationship looks like anyway, right? So instead, I'm going to model how I want you to respond to Onesimus. You've heard what I've written in other churches. I mean, you've heard me preach. So I want you to look at Onesimus, and how are you going to respond to him? With love. And what kind of love? Oh, Christian love. And what's Christian love, Philemon? Is it just a feeling, a song, a moment? No, 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 no. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. God-given, agape love is patient. It's kind. Christian love does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered, Philemon. It keeps no record of wrongs, Philemon. Later, Paul would say this to the church in Philippi, in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I love what N.T. Wright, the great New Testament scholar, wrote about this part of the Bible when he said, No Christian should grumble about an extra demand of love. 
They are the golden opportunities to draw into the reservoir of divine love and in so doing, becoming more fully oneself in Christ and more authentically human. No record of wrongs, Philemon. You don't keep an account of other people's stuff that they've done to you, even though sometimes you can't forget it, because Jesus doesn't choose to use stuff against you, so you don't choose to use stuff against them, right? I mean, it's what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Jesus, not counting people's sins against them. So do as Jesus has already done for you, Philemon. I'd prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. And by the way, it is none other than than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. See, Paul intentionally lowers himself even more in this letter. Remember how Paul started this personal letter to Philemon, uh, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And why did he do this? Because Paul wanted to start this letter by reminding Philemon and this whole local church in Colossae that Paul is marginalized at this moment, is being treated unfairly at this moment. He is an example that must be followed, humility, hope, forgiveness. And now he goes farther. I'm not just a prisoner. I'm weak and I'm old and I don't have power and I'm in jail unjustly, but I have Jesus. So how would you treat me as an elderly, not in charge, no position, no power person as a Christian with love, right? Well, I want you now to do the same to Onesimus. And that is why strategically and amazingly spirit-filled moment, Paul only now uses Onesimus' name for the first time, right here in verse 10. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Okay, let's remind ourselves again that Onesimus is at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of Roman society. One wrote, here's the order of power in Rome. Emperor, nobles, then senators, then equestrians, then municipal magistrate and senators, then freeborn Roman citizens, that's Paul, by the way, then freed slave citizens, and then slaves. Now, I did not know this, but as I began to research and study and pray and read the story, I found out that Onesimus probably is not even his real name. Many masters would rename their slaves, again, to dehumanize them and brand them to their jobs. See, Onesimus was a common name in the Lystra Valley where this is taking place. But do you know what Onesimus means? It means useful or of some benefit. Hey, useful, get my coffee. Hey, useful, clean the kitchen. Hey, useful, put my kids to bed. Hey, hey, useful, go unplug the toilet. His very name undermines the personhood, the value, the God-given dignity of this person. And yet Onesimus has become a son spiritually to Paul in prison. Do you feel the dignity starting to be restored because of the gospel? Not his job, not his status, but because he's family. He is my spiritual son, just like you are, right, Philemon? Hey, everyone, he on the run became one of us. I led him to Jesus while I was under house arrest. And then Paul uses his name to bring home the power of the gospel. Formerly, watch this, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you, Philemon, and to me. Hey, before he was a Christian, maybe he wasn't loyal. Maybe he wasn't a good worker. Maybe he did something and that's why he ran away and it was really bad. Maybe you think, oh, I'm just going to sell him and get rid of him. But no, 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 no. He's really changed. And he's helping me so much. Many people think that maybe he wrote this letter down or he, he was helping Paul evangelize or getting food. Who knows? But see, do you see the wordplay? 
useful is now useful to you, Philemon, and to me and the kingdom of God. The good news of Jesus is even redeeming his slave name now through the lens of the kingdom. He says in verse 12, I'm sending him who's my very heart back to you. I, I would have liked to keep him with me so he could take your place, Philemon, and helping me while well, I'm here in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Oh, he's amazing at setups, isn't he? So ready, Paul says, the runaway slave who's met Jesus, who's now our brother, is my very heart. He's part of me. And since Philemon, I know that you love me and I'm your pastor. You will treat him the same way that you would treat me if I showed up, right? But, but more, uh, think about this. Sanctus is so important. Onesimus didn't have to come back. He could have stayed on the run. He could have heard the implications of the gospel and left Paul. See, as you sit with the text and listen more and more, what's so wild and crazy, it seems that actually Onesimus did want to come back to Philemon to restore the relationship because they both now had met Jesus. Really? Paul is saying, okay, because you're now brothers in Jesus, everything changes. Now, Paul understands this is complicated. And that's what I love about Paul. I love about the Bible. It doesn't gloss over difficult things and put a bumper sticker on it and say, you know, just do what Jesus would do. Well, okay. Paul's saying, I'm acknowledging the law. I don't want you to do anything without consent. According to Roman law, I know you own him. I know that repentance and, and restoration are two different things. But actually, I, I want to take this farther, Paul says. I want you, Philemon, to forgive Onesimus. And I want you to accept Onesimus into the church, and I want you to love him like you've done so amazing with all these other Christians. And then I'm going to take this farther. I want you to let him go. Since you, Philemon, can't come help me with the gospel, I need him to come help me. So you need to let him go and set him free, okay? So again, I know you legally own him, but if you set him free, we can all do more for the kingdom of God. So forgive him, set him free, empower him, so he can become a church leader just like us. What? Oh, listen, I know you're humiliated, but he's been humbled and I've been humbled and you need to be humbled because our humble Lord is showing us that actually more will come to Jesus if we let the kingdom of God grow. So no manipulation and no belittling and no human compulsion, but Philemon, are you beginning to see differently? Are you beginning to feel differently? Onesimus is not a thing. He's not property. Right? And then Paul does it. <laughs> Perhaps the reason Onesimus was separated from you, Philemon, just for a little while, was that you might have him back forever. Everyone's like, oh my goodness, what permanent slavery? Oh, no, no, no. Hey, Philemon. Hey, everyone in the church in Colossae. Hey, everyone listening at Sanctus Church in 2021. This wasn't a fluke. This was not just a mistake or an act of rebellion or desperation. See, look from heaven's view. We all actually need to see this through heaven's view, not what you both feel or think or what you both did. Hey, Philemon, I know your honor was impinged upon and you were stolen from and good chance he wasn't a great worker. And again, good chance maybe did something really bad. And Onesimus, maybe you said, well, I just want to be free or I want a better life or I want to make my own choices or I want good food or you were a terrible master. You, you don't. See, God, write this down. <laughs> God takes an unwinnable, no common ground moment and sees it through the plans of heaven. 
By the way, we've been here in holy history before, right? I mean, we've seen this somewhere before. Oh, right, it's Joseph who was mistreated by his brothers and then sold into slavery. And what did Joseph say when he not only forgave his brothers, but reconciled with his brothers? You know, years and years later, Genesis 50, 20, you intended to do harm to me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, Philemon, you're going to have Onesimus forever. Oh, not as a slave. But as a brother in Jesus, see, you have eternal life now, and I have eternal life now, and and he has eternal life now, and and this moment is going to lead to life everywhere, and so now you are going to be with each other in the new heavens and the new earth forever. Oh, this is critical. See, now forgiveness and reconciliation can begin because you both are starting to get heaven's view, and all three of us can lead others to Jesus if heaven's view wins. Now here, this is where we arrive at the real moment. This is the theological, social, interpersonal working out of the kingdom of God on the ground. This is the seeds of why this house will be different, why this church will be different, and why the world might be different. So Paul says, I've given up my rights and authority. Oh, and of course, Jesus, our model, gave up his rights and his authority. So actually, Philemon, you need to give up your rights and your authority because we all want to function in something called cross-center leadership, not Roman-based power leadership, right? Perhaps the reason why he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. Here it is, ready? No longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow human and a brother in the Lord. So you can't just treat him the way you did before. He's not the person that ran away, but more than that, let God speak. Paul, inspired by the Spirit, gives four descriptions of Onesimus. He is no longer a slave. Now, this is a double-layered meeting. Don't rush quickly to the societal. See, this is a salvation statement before a societal statement, though they're both here. This comes right from Galatians 4, 7. So you are no longer a slave to the devil, death, or sin, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you an heir. He says later in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, Though once we regarded Jesus in this way, we do so no longer. So this is a declaration that Onesimus is an heir of God, is God's child, and is saved, and we need to look at each other differently. But it's also a societal moment where in God's eyes, in my opinion, the declaration is, it is done. The undoing has begun. So he's saved, and not only that, he's a dear brother. Not just brother, dear brother. He's a family member. And more, he's a fellow man. He's made in the image of God. He's not property. Never was, never will be. And lastly, listen, Philemon, church in Colossae, he is your brother in Jesus. He is part of a family that ripples into eternity. As one scholar said, the language elevates the slave from the margins of the family to the family table. New conditions have been created in a sibling-shaped relationship rather than a status shaped community. Whoa. Let me bring this home. The slaves who would be preparing dinner and serving dinner at the master's table, who still would probably continue to do that, would then be invited now to sit at the table because communion was taken in the early church in homes where? At the family table. This is incredible. 
We're all applauding. This is amazing. The white hanky is out. Justice, yeah, well, it's easy to be an armchair quarterback and say, let's just all do this. Well, it's one thing to do the right thing. It's another thing to talk about it. I love when I found a guy named Stephen Barton who imagined what Philemon initially would have written back to Paul. Am I to understand that you wish for Onesimus to be granted his liberty? Brother Paul, I don't think you realize what you're asking. Forgive me for doubting your wisdom, but your expectations goes against all my natural inclinations. Then there's the problem of the other slaves in my house. They're all going to want freedom too. And then what will become of us? We will be a laughing stock in our community. Who's ever heard of a master without slaves? And oh, we don't get this because we're sitting in North America in 2021. No one in the marketplace would deal with me anymore. I mean, I could lose my whole business. And they'd think I'm throwing it all in because I'm becoming one of those mad philosophic cynics. Beloved Paul, is, is it not important to maintain social order? Is it not possible for Onesimus to be both my slave and brother? Is it not possible for us to be one in the spirit, but master and slave while we're still here in this world? Ooh. Okay, so what happened? Or what could have happened? Well, three options. One, Philemon could ignore all this and punish him or kill him, which we know from church history and from scripture does not happen. The second option is that Onesimus remains a slave only legally, Philemon restores him to his household and also to the local church, and Onesimus does his job, but now they live under the kingdom household rules outlined in Colossians 3.22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything, and, and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for God. What, whatever you do, work at it, work at it, work at it with your whole heart as, we're, as for working for the Lord, not for human masters since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as reward. It is the Lord Christ you're serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. There's no favoritism. Hey, masters, provide slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you have a master in heaven. So, Onesimus, do your work for Jesus. You'll receive a reward. If there's injustice, Jesus is going to sort it out. And Philemon, you're accountable and you're a slave yourself to God. And you now know how he needs to be treated. Onesimus is a brother and he takes communion with you and, and he's got spiritual gifts. And so that's how you work it out. Now, the second option is, by the way, not the roof. It's the ground floor. It's now the starting point, which is, by the way, again, revolutionary, unheard of anywhere on earth at this moment. But see, Paul's asked for something more. He's asked to go from the ground to the roof. He says, I want you to set him free. I, I want you to make him a freedman. I, I think this is a call for manumission. So he says, you know, I think this is Paul, Paul saying, I think this is God's will. Set him free so he can come work with me. Okay, <laughs> let's stop there. You're like, really? Yeah, let's stop there. Now, some of you are like, wow, this is incredible. I have so much to think about. Others of you are like, I'm so angry. I'm not satisfied. But context is king. Why does Paul not just declare, this is done, slavery is evil, let's get it over with? Well, I love when someone recently wrote on this and brought it to us. He said, just as we cannot decide on a whim to rid the world of fossil fuels, however, we would love to do it. Even environmental activists still find themselves traveling by train and plane and car. So Paul couldn't just abolish slavery. And by the way, to the uncomfortableness of many of us, he never set out to do that. But he could subvert it. And that's exactly what we see him doing as gently and smoothly as he can within the context of this delicate pastoral conundrum. But he did not go in with all guns blazing. 
See, let's say this again. Everyone lean in. God's ultimate goal is that the gospel would be preached. And as the gospel is preached, let, oh, let me just stop and do this. I want you to imagine a huge social ill being solved tomorrow. Uh, the environmental issue, done. Just pollution's gone. Or racism eradicated from every heart. Or uh, no more drugs globally on earth. There's not a, it's just done. Can you imagine one large societal issue just disappearing? And we go, oh, that's incredible. It would be incredible. It would be incredible. But people would still be going to hell, right? They'd still be eternally lost, right? See, God's ultimate goal is for the gospel to be preached and to work backwards. As the gospel is embraced by some, those families and those communities, then who are called, could begin to live differently under the gospel, which in the end could change the fabric of society. And as we see, Paul himself is beginning to fight back through Jesus-inspired civil disobedience. But it's clear, and it's clear, and it's got to be noted at this moment, many, many, many churches and church leaders over 2,000 years have used Colossians and many other texts to get away with rape and torture and murder and not giving what's fair, let alone right, let alone dignity, let alone freedom. We, of course, as the global church, need to say many times, actually, we have used God's word to cover evil and used it as a weapon, period. But see, Paul is showing us a different way. Now, I could end this whole sermon, by the way, on knowing your true dignity and identity through Jesus, like we see through the life of Onesimus, and no one can steal it or remove it. And it would be quite profound for many of us. I could end this whole sermon by asking God to send the Holy Spirit to all of us that have been deeply wronged and ask God to help us see the injustice through the eyes of heaven and see what God wants to do with it right now. What resurrection could come from the real, ugly, evil death you have lived through or you are living through by the hands of others? I'm not saying God started it, but what resurrection could come out of the grave because of it? And that would be an amazing ending. And maybe God will send his Holy Spirit and help some of you do that. But actually, I mean, here's the reminder moment. The heart of this series is not a series on slavery directly. It's a series on forgiveness and reconciliation through the story of Philemon and Onesimus. See, no one within the sound of my voice can reduce this series to slavery alone. It's actually forgiveness that God is actually ultimately speaking about. And forgiveness is one of the cornerstones of a church. C.S. Lewis once said, we all agree that forgiveness is beautiful until we have to practice it. Now, I'm going to read something that's going to make a lot of you angry, but I'm going to read it because it brings home what we're trying to wrestle out here. One scholar said, a lot of us as modern readers will take umbrage, we'll be really angry over any suggestion that Onesimus needs forgiveness for trying to escape the oppression of Philemon. I mean, Philemon's the oppressor by virtue of owning slaves, right? Onesimus is the victim, not Philemon. But this attitude fails to take seriously how we all, victim and victimizer, are caught in this web of sin. Any evil system makes it hard in the end for anyone to be pure, to do good, to avoid harming others. And we tend always to regard, I'm the wronged innocent party, and, and you've done the problem. We'd like to dump all the blame on one party in a dispute and consider the other party innocent. But see, in the Christian context, both Philemon and Onesimus, from heaven's view, are sinners. And we might, may now safely assume that Onesimus has forgiven Philemon any wrong done to him because he decides to go back 
to the household. The issue that Paul, and lean in everyone, if you're getting sort of triggered, lean in. The issue that Paul is dealing with here is not who is the most guilty, but how to restore a broken relationship. Before there can be any reconciliation, both must repent and forgive the other for real and perceived wrongs. See how complicated this is? So then the question we need to ask is, well, how do we get there? Well, before you look at anyone else, if you are a Christian, I know some of you are not, but for we who are followers of Jesus, if you are, if Jesus is Savior, Leader, and Lord, then we need to hear for the first time or all over again that our sin are so vast and so offensive to God that actually we need to see that first and then see the power of Jesus before we get to another one else, anyone else. See, our, our lives are marked by transgression and debt, trespass, iniquity, and thought, word, and deed. We regularly, intentionally, and unintentionally violate God's will and law. We trespass. We're not, we go to places we're not allowed to go. We have a mortgage we cannot repay. Sin. Like I shared last week, our sin, our smallest sin act, is so offensive to God that Ephesians 2 says that we are all as human beings, human beings deserving of His wrath because He's holy. Only when we see how big and offensive and evil and ungodly the smallest of our sins is, and then the amazing idea that Jesus came for us, let alone died in our place, let alone forgives us, not once but over and over again, only when that begins gets clear, then do we get to move to someone else. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus continually invites us all the time. Forgive us our debts, right, as we forgive our debtors. I mean, and it's, it's practicing the spiritual discipline of confession. And what is confession? Confession is agreeing with God that what he calls sin is actually sin. And confession is not just agreement, but it is acting on that. And the amazing thing that 1 John 1.9 says... If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from, here's the key, key word, all unrighteousness. So we have to be reminded how vast, how dangerous, how offensive, how noxious our sin is in, in the face of a holy, loving God. And then see the beauty, the majesty, the power, the ongoing transformational forgiveness of Jesus every day. His mercies are new every morning. And then Jesus says, and oh, by the way, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As God has done through Jesus, you now need to extend to others. God's forgiveness comes first, and then he moves us to do the same. Is forgiveness a process? Yes. Must you make a decision to begin to forgive someone? Yes. This prayer and the story of Philemon and Onesimus moves us to see what we've done to ourselves and others, makes us see our inability, our lack of wanting to forgive, shows us the complexity of the human story, and yet God, through Jesus, wants our joy and freedom, so we are no longer slaves to unforgiveness, and he invites us to forgive others. Remember, critical, forgiveness is not forgetting. And forgiveness is not lack of justice. You can forgive someone, and they can still go to jail. You can forgive someone and end up, end up not being reconciled with them. But forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is a crisis of the will and it's giving up your rights to God to hurt them back. You want to know the best definition of forgiveness I've ever found? Forgiveness is assuming personal responsibility 
for the emotional pain and consequences of another person's sin in your life. Oh, let me say it again. Forgiveness is assuming personal responsibility for the emotional pain and consequence of another person's sin in your life. Is this natural? No way. Is it going to take time? Possibly a lifetime. But must we as Christians be willing? Yes. Is forgiving others a radical reflection of God's love towards us? Always. God says the most powerful expression of his kingdom is forgiveness. In other words, this is the most Christ-like thing you'll ever do. On a side note, I'm not saying if a crime has been committed, there cannot be justice. Someone still can be dealt with the law and still be forgiven at the same time. But what you now know as a Christian, which is different than the world understands, is forgiveness is more powerful than revenge. You have been forgiven so much, and you know God knows everything, and you know God's love so much, you must extend it to others. So if a person has sinned against you, and they become a Christian... Jesus will extend the same forgiveness to them that he gives to you. Now, here's the thing. If they don't accept Jesus and they get away with whatever it is, they will face God himself on judgment day. Jesus will not cover them and there will be justice. But if they do become a Christian, that terrible thing that person did to you is now placed on Jesus's body and Jesus bore the penalty of that sin. Their justice is given. God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus. God the Father placed that sin on Jesus. So in either option, either Jesus takes the bullet or on judgment day, that person takes the wrath of God with no help. That is why it is possible to work towards keeping no record of wrongs. So forgiveness is not optional, but forgiveness does not equal reconciliation. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. So Philemon, so Onesimus, so Sanctus Church, forgive each other in Christ as Christ has forgiven you. You see the holy setup? Week one, uh, you don't get to choose who God chooses. Week two, the unity, which is the starting point before you even get to forgiveness, is beyond us in God the Father's call in the work of Jesus in the presence of the Spirit. Week three, those two things have to become real on the ground as we try to forgive each other. Next week, we talk about what the difference is is between forgiveness and reconciliation and and why sometimes it happens and why sometimes it doesn't. But here's the takeaway right now. Who do you need to forgive? Lots of us go, oh no, I'm fine with everyone. Whoa, stop. This is a moment here and this will be a moment this week. You need to sit with the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, is there anyone I have to forgive? That I am choosing because of the power of the Holy Spirit to live with the consequences of their stuff on me. It's not saying you're saying it's right, but... Holy Spirit, who must I forgive for a perceived issue or a real issue? Two, am I willing? Lots of time in renouncing prayer uh, when I get to serve in that ministry and it comes to a forgiveness piece and there's huge issues, massive issues. We always ask this question, are you willing to be willing to begin to forgive? So in other words, you ask Holy Spirit, who do I need to forgive so you don't get away with anything? Second of all, am I willing? And lots of people say, well, I'm not willing, but with God's help, I could be willing. So what do you do? You say, well, Holy Spirit, give me the ability even to make me willing to begin to think about forgiving. 
He's okay with that. And third of all, I'm just going to give you a prayer. Uh, This is one of the simple prayers we use in releasing prayer that might help you in community to pray this, with a counselor, maybe to pray this, or with yourself. You're going to write it down. It's, Lord Jesus, I confess and renounce all unforgiveness. And I choose to forgive and say the person's name. For the, and then list, say it loud, or list the offense or offenses. Because it made me feel, and then say what you felt. Lord Jesus, I confess and renounce unforgiveness, and I choose to forgive, say their name. For, say the offense, because it made me feel, say what it made me feel. The story of Philemon and Onesimus, yes, gives us hope that God is undoing the great crime of slavery. But the heart of the book is teaching us how to forgive each other. And so it's right that we end with the sign of our forgiveness. Today, right across our church, we're going to take communion, and you've probably been prepped for that. And of course, we know that Jesus, just before he was betrayed and he was executed, he was at a Passover meal and he took some bread and he broke it and said, this is going to be my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then remember, he took one of the goblets of wine. There were a few there. This is my blood. It's going to be shed for you, spilled for you. This is a new covenant. And what was Jesus teaching? That his death was going to be the place where actually forgiveness would be extended to us. His body would be broken, not because he was innocent. We weren't. He was innocent. It says in the Old Testament, all our sins would be laid on him. By his stripes, we would be healed, right? So Jesus takes the bread, he breaks and says, this is my body broken for you. And so the Bible is very clear that we take communion together. You might call it Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. We take it together to remember the death of Jesus, to acknowledge the physical resurrection of Jesus, to acknowledge that Jesus is our Savior and Lord and He forgives us. The Bible is clear that we are to stop and reflect to see if we need to actually confess or even forgive someone or try to even reconcile. But this is a moment where we also are reminded that in the new heavens and the new earth, there's something called the Great Supper of the Lamb, the Last Supper of the Lamb, where we will eat face-to-face with Jesus and each other and we'll never take communion again because this is symbolic of what is truly coming. Jesus isn't in these elements, but he sure is at the table. And he's with you wherever you are. And so if you want to just take a piece of bread and get some juice, I'm going to lead us through this. Thanks, Jesus, that you chose to forgive us. Thanks, Jesus, that you died on a cross. Thank you that you agreed with the Father before the beginning of time to come and save us. Thank you, Father and Son, for sending us the Holy Spirit to give us the power to say no to sin and the power to forgive and and actually the power for resurrection. But at this moment, we thank you, Jesus, for your death, your willing sacrifice to forgive us and that all of our sins and all the sins of all of humanity and all our brokenness was placed on you. Thank you that you broke your body. Thank you that you spilled your blood. So we now across Sanctus Church and beyond just take these elements as a reminder of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, We take a moment to say, Holy Spirit, do we need to confess anything to you? Holy Spirit, is there anyone we need to forgive? Well, then out of the preaching of God's word and out of the promptings of the Spirit and out of this moment of communion, 
We celebrate our freedom and pray you'd begin to restore and forgive in a way we've never seen before in our church. In Jesus' name, we take this together. We all said, amen. So glad you joined us to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection, to hear his word, to worship. And next week, we're going to begin the conversation about reconciliation. We'll see you then. Thank you.